0: to talk to your children about, pull out the bulletin and walk through that scripture. Why don't we pull out our scriptures and turn to John chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the first 17 verses. There are just so many things up here, holy mackerel. Papers accumulate, right? Just like at home. I'm currently in the middle of a a documentary on champagne making called uh, A Year in Champagne. And that just details out a year of of what the vintners there do to make champagne. It's fascinating. But uh, one of the things they said is to have any kind of success as a vintner, you have to adopt a long-term attitude. You have to look at it long-term. The First year, the vintner usually plants um, a little vine, not a seed, but a little vine. It gives it a better chance to grow. And then the first year, they prune it back. Second year, it grows. They prune it back again. Only the third year do you start seeing the first clusters of grapes. And the best vintners, best wineries, don't even take those grapes off the vine. They don't harvest them. It's only until year four that they have their actually first harvest. They'll bottle that harvest, but most won't taste the fruit of their labor for at least seven or eight more years. Most wineries don't even begin to approach breaking even until about year 15, 16, or 17. How about that? How about that for a business plan? Give me money, and in 20 years you'll see something back. Applying these insights into our spiritual life can raise many great questions for us. Do you ever look at your life and wonder, why am I not more fruitful as a Christian? Do you ever ask, why does cultivating spiritual fruit take so long? I want it now. broke Assault from. From uh, Willy Wonka, I want it now. That's the attitude that most Christians have. I want it now. And what fruit should we even be looking for? And what about the process of cultivating spiritual fruit in our lives? What does it look like? What must I do? What does God do? And what does the pruning process look like in my life? Well, these are just some of the things we're going to talk about, some of the things we're going to address today while looking at John 15, first 17 verses. Please look at them with me. Jesus in the upper room talking to his disciples. The 11 say, I am the true vine. He's speaking of of himself. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my word remains in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. You see, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you my friends for everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. John's gospel is unique in many ways, and we've talked about that over the months that we've been studying John, but one way that stands out is John does not record any parables. Instead, John employs word pictures, and we have a great word picture right here. I am the vine. Look at verse one. I am the vine, and my father is the gardener, and we are the branches. This final I am statement is giving us a word picture of viticulture. That's the the wine a grape producing on a vine. And where Jesus is the vine, Jesus is the trunk. We are the branches extending out from the main trunk, and and the branches are the things that produce the, the, the fruit, the grapes. And God, the Father, is the gardener, the vine dresser. And the purpose Jesus has for this image is to teach us what Christian fruitfulness looks like and how it is achieved. So what does Christian fruitfulness look like? Well, when we look at an apple tree, we expect to see apples. When we look at a pear tree, we expect to see pears. When we look at a grapevine, we expect to see grapes. So too, Jesus is saying, if you're a true believer, if, if, the, if the Spirit has indwelt you, if you've accepted Jesus, you will bear fruit in keeping with who you are. You'll bear fruit in keeping with who you are. Look at verse 8 with me. He says this, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Christian fruit is an evidence of authentic belief. So the natural question that follows is, What is this fruit? What fruit should we see on the trees of our lives? Well, as I read this passage, I see three predominant fruit. There's others, but in this passage, there are pretty much three we can look at. And the first one is pretty obvious, joy. Look at verse 11 with me. Jesus says to his disciples, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Paul reiterates this fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. As we know, we have those wonderful list of nine fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Joy is the second one listed there. G.K. Chesterton called joy the gigantic secret of the Christian life. Isn't that wonderful? As a matter of fact, uh, joy is a big factor in in G.K. Chesterton's journey from atheism to conversion to the Christian faith. He wrote this, As I studied and restudied the life of Jesus, I discovered the great secret he kept hidden from everyone was his great joy. Christianity without great joy is a betrayal of the one we follow. We are a forgiven, redeemed people, he writes, who belong to a faithful flock on the way to heaven. Isn't that beautiful? You know, where do we draw our joy from? You know, a lot of people, we go, well, what's going on in my life? That'll tell you how joyful I am. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you, you, you draw joy from a totally different source than circumstances. I think G.K. Chesterton hits it right here. Our joy is not rooted in circumstances, but upon our position. Do you know who you are, Christian? Do you believe that you're redeemed, that you're forgiven? In in our Sunday school, we were just talking about this. Do you preach the gospel to yourself every day and realize that Christ's perfect obedience is given you? His, His righteousness is given you. something to be incredibly joyful over. And as we learned back there, that, that really kind of starts disintegrating that I have to earn God's love. That terrible works righteousness that we all have in our hearts. We are forgiven and redeemed people. David in Psalm 51 wrote, Restore the joy of my salvation. Joy is born out of knowing who we are and what we have been given. There's that worldly proverb that is, that is true as well. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, right? We really have to, we can spiritualize that into a real truth for us. We have to concentrate on the joy of the great pearl we have been given. and not on all the things the world says this will bring you joy. That's the secret to to keeping a sustained joy in this in this life. Because the world offers joy rooted in many different things. See, the world says, you know, root your joy in your pride, in being better than others in being above, in having power or sway. That's what the world continues to tell us. But the Christian finds joy in humility. The Christian finds joy in serving others. The Christian finds joy in considering others better than yourself. How does that strike you? The world offers joy in self. Think of yourself first, it says. Watch out for number one. Your comfort, your pleasure, satisfying your own desires. The Christian joy is not rooted in that. Christian joy is rooted in others. You get joy in being the good Samaritan, so to speak. You get joy in going the extra mile. You get joy in giving towards others beyond what is expected. The world finds joy in disobedience. That's, eighth graders, that's what high school's gonna tell you. You will find joy and fun and fulfillment in things that you shouldn't be doing. And it'll say it loud, guys. And it'll say it repeatedly. That's not where the Christian finds joy. The Christian finds joy in obedience. Isn't that amazing? Pastor Terry Fulham states that the fruit of the Spirit grows only in the garden of obedience. That's the second fruit that Jesus points to. Not just joy, but also obedience. This is really a major theme in the Upper Room Discourse in the five chapters starting in verse in chapter 13. As we saw last week when we looked at chapter 14, four times it's mentioned, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And here he reiterates that in another way in verse 10. He says, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Yeah, the fruit hanging on every Christian's tree is obedience. If, if you're a regenerate, spirit-filled believer here today, there is part of your heart and mind that wants to obey God. And I know there is that struggle. There is that struggle that, that Paul tells us about in Romans 7. But there's part of you who, that really wants and desires to obey God and not just out of dry obedience, not just I'll do this because sometimes we have to do that guys. I get it. But really the change that the gospel makes in your heart is that you start desiring to obey. You find pleasure in obeying. That's the fruit that really hangs off your bows as a Christian you know, Romans 12:9 our our memory verse as a congregation that we should progressively hate what is evil and cling to what is good that's just saying this again see obedience isn't just do this and don't do that it's a desire to please our god The third fruit that we have hanging on our tree is the fruit of love, as I see it. That's the third cluster, if you will. Joy, obedience, and love. And this really dominates the second half of our text, doesn't it? It's what John is talking about. Loving one another. Look with me at verse 12. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Verse 17, this is my command, love each other. I don't think that, again, this is not dry and dutiful love to your brother and sister. Because that reveals their attitude towards God, doesn't it? If you're just going through the motions of loving your brother and sister in Christ, that really shows your heart towards God. Because the horizontal is always the barometer to the vertical. You have to know that, brothers and sisters. Who you are towards your brothers and sisters is really your heart towards God. That's why the greatest commandment is bound up in those two. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your brother as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So why does loving each other, what does loving each other look like? I think verse 13 tells us. Look at verse 13. Here's what loving your brother and sister looks like. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Now, I don't think that Jesus is absolutizing giving your life up. I don't think that's what he's saying here. But I think he is using radical language to get a point across. You may want to know what real brotherly and sisterly love looks like. You know, want to know what real love looks like in a marriage. You want to know what real love looks like in a friendship. It looks sacrificial. Sacrificial. That's the point that Jesus is getting across, that radical point. Love sacrifices. So what would that look like in our life? What does that type of, of love look like? Let's just take in a body of Christ, because that's really where this dynamic should be, be being seen most evidently. What does it look like? Well, it could mean simply being willing to speak truth into somebody else's life. Well, Blake, how, how is that really sacrificial? What am I sacrificing when I go up to a brother or sister and and confront them on a possible sin that they might be doing? Well, I think that you're sacrificing possibly your reputation. You could be sacrificing the peace in that relationship, aren't you? This is going to be tough. You could even be sacrificing that relationship. Brothers and sisters... Have you ever done that for another sister or brother in the faith when you see them sinning? It could possibly mean being willing to help another believer walk with God. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever taken time out of your busy schedule that is so very important that all the things that you have to get done? Have you ever taken time out of your schedule to sit with another believer on a consistent basis and help them walk with God. Believers, brothers and sisters, you should be. Because that is sacrificial. You're taking time out of your schedule. You're, you're putting the things that you think are of such high priority on the side and putting another person first. Could mean what, being willing to encourage another believer. Well, how, like, how's that? how's that sacrificial love just encouraging? Well, have you ever uttered these words? Jeannie, you're so much better than I am at fill in the blank. Elaine, you are so amazing at, I wish I was more like you in, Bernie, I wish I was more like you in this aspect. Have you ever encouraged anybody like that? Brother and sister, what you're sacrificing, well, you're putting them above you. It could mean simply being willing to give generously to another brother and sister. How is that sacrificial? Well, have you ever thought about giving something, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be money, giving something to help another brother and sister to the point where it hampers your lifestyle. It's easy to give the access. The, I, you know, not this church, but normally churches, you know, get the couch that now they don't want because they have a new one. Is that what we do with our brothers and sisters? Here's this. I don't need it anymore. I have a new one. Now, sacrificial love says, I'll go without the couch. You need a couch. Or whatever that looks like. True Christian love is always sacrificial in nature because it really mirrors the kind of love that Jesus gave us. Greater love has no one than this, that he give his life for his friend. I mean, this is clearly an allusion to Jesus going to the cross, isn't it? which brings us to how we follow Christ, how Christian fate, uh, fruitfulness is achieved. How is Christian fruitfulness achieved? Okay, we know love and obedience and joy. Okay, how do, how does that work? Mark Johnson says this, to be part of a church of God, you have to place have a place in God's family and to enjoy that life that God offers all have their beginning and end with God's Son and with knowing Him. The beginning of Christian fruitfulness is being connected to the vine. Are you connected to Jesus Christ? That takes radical acceptance. What I'm terming radical acceptance. To borrow a viticulture term from Romans 11, we have to be grafted into the vine. You don't naturally grow in or from the vine of Jesus Christ. You have to be grafted in, and that takes radical acceptance. Look at verse 13 again with me. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life For his friends. Jesus is describing the sacrificial love, not only that we should show towards each other, but that he shows towards us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Years ago, the chancellor of Moody Bible College, uh, George Sweeting, used the sacrifice of David Koska to help us understand the gospel. And he told the story of Koska, who was umpiring a little league game in western Pennsylvania when In the distance, he saw a tornado actually touch down and start coming towards the field. At that point, he he rushed into the stands and he grabbed his niece and he threw her into a, a ditch and he covered her with his body. And then as the tornado came across, of course, he was sucked away and killed, but that niece lived on. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. If we still tell that story that happened 50 years ago about that sacrifice, how much more should we tell of the amazing sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us? Because the second person of the Godhead came down, and he actually lived a human life. He he voluntarily put himself under the law so that he had to fulfill it. And he did fulfill the law. He did not sin. He did what we cannot do. You know, when Jesus was challenged one time, he said, hey, listen, I did not come to abolish the law. I didn't come to live a, a cheap grace life. I came to fulfill the law. Jesus willingly went to the cross after filling its requirements. Not for a niece that loved him. That's easy. You know, I would pray that I would do the same for each and every one of you if I saw a tornado coming. But that's easy. I love you. Jesus did it for people that didn't love him. We tell this old, old story because he died... He took their tornadic winds of God's wrath on the cross. And he could have stepped down. He was God. He could have said, that's it, I'm done. But he remained up there and died so that we might be left alive, just like Casca. He was sucked away. We remain. So in order to have life whatsoever, to have any kind of life, in order not to be a branch that is is not connected to the vine, what happens to a, van- a branch that's not connected? It, it slowly withers, it gets brittle, and you know if we find it on the ground, we throw it in the fire. That's what he's saying here. In order not to be that withering branch, you have to be connected, having having the sap running through you. That vine keeps you alive, but you have to be radically connected to that vine. You have to be grafted in, and once you are, you start abiding, you start remaining, you start living and the only way to be connected to Jesus is by radically accepting his forgiveness because that's what that's what Christianity is all about guys I've said this over and over again and i'm going to say it over and over again until you guys are throw me away throw me get rid of this pastor. Christianity is not about living a better life. Yeah, that's a byproduct, maybe, if you're lucky. Christianity is about forgiveness. The only way to have this radical grafting is to say, Jesus, I need you. Please forgive me. It's the only way to be grafted in is through repentance and forgiveness. Now, if you're here today and and this is new to you or, or you're hearing this and you're going, huh, never thought about that. I want to quote from you what Paul said to the Corinthian church. He said, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Right now. You can be grafted in and live. Radical acceptance of Jesus Christ. So what does abide or remain in Christ mean? Well, that's the second way that we achieve fruitfulness, not only by being grafted in by radically accepting Christ, but also by radically depending on Christ. Recall the word picture Jesus is painting a grapevine and branches extending from it. And on those branches are fruit. The only way the branches stay alive and to thrive is to be radically dependent on that trunk. What Christ is saying is that without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you wither and die. That's what Christ is saying. We, the branches, are totally dependent on Christ. We need Jesus desperately every day. Desperately. We need to really believe that apart from him, I can't do anything on a day-to-day basis. I chuckled recently when I read what Russell Moore wrote in Christianity Today. He wrote this. He said, For so long we've called unbelievers to invite Jesus into your life. Jesus doesn't want to be part of your life. Your life is a wreck. Jesus calls you into his life. I think that's what's so true. He's calling you into his life to abide in his life. To depend on him. That's what he says 15 times in our text. In 17 verses, he says 15 times. Remain in me. Abide in me. Depend on me. Depend on me. Depend on me. If I said it 15 times, you might throw me away. That, what he's giving us a picture here is of radical dependence on him. And so many of us live independent lives. We don't depend on him. I was reading this week about skiing. I don't ski that much anymore because of my ankles, but there's, there's apparently, maybe some people here have witnessed this, there are blind people who ski. And, uh, and they wear bright colored vests, so people can see them apparently. And they ski right behind their instructor. And the instructor shouts out what they should do. Turn left, turn right, turn left quickly, stop, go straight. And the blind skier, as you and I know, would have to listen intently on that instructor or else they go off and they get severely hurt. They'll never make it down the mountain. It's the kind of dependence, that type of, of concentrated listening and, and obeying that we need as believers do you want to achieve Christian fruitfulness? Realize that you're pretty blind and radically dependent on Christ. Finally, and probably most painfully, being spiritually fruitful is all about radical pruning. Radical pruning. Verse 1 describes God as the gardener in the NIV and some others, it's a vine dresser. A vine dresser was the person that would go out and would care for the vines. And part of that caring is pruning, is cutting. And not just the bad, unfruitful branches. Did you notice it in verse 2? Verse 2 says, he cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. That's obvious. Of course you're going to get rid of that. So that it will be even, uh, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Why? So that it will be even more fruitful. Not just the bad branches, but the good, healthy branches. One author put it, those who best convey life get the knife. I like that. Those who best convey life get the knife. We have a tendency to think in the Christian circles a little bit on, on one dimension, that, oh boy, there's trouble and difficulty and suffering and persecution and tribulation in my life. I must have done something wrong. And that can be true. Or we think, oh, what's going on? I'm living a pretty good life. This must be just happenstance, coincidence. No. Sometimes the most fruitful Christians get the most severe pruning by the Lord. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever put your troubles and difficulties in that context? First uh, Psalmist in Psalm 11967 says this, "Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word." Listen, to how he follows it up with verse 71. "It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees." I like what Paul Metzger says in his commentary. He says, Who- "Whoever said Christianity is a crutch? That person had no idea what true Christianity is like. I wish it were a crutch. I wish I wish I could feel so much more secure than I do. Instead, God keeps pruning me, removing the crutches and props that I depend on so that I will depend only on Jesus. Exper- experiencing pruning makes me feel so vulnerable that I can only fall into the arms of Jesus. That's what real pruning is, guys. It's taking away the things that we depend on besides Christ. The securities. You know, for me, I'll tell you, family, for me, is a great source of security. And what did Jesus do in his divine wisdom? He took us 20 hours, 8 hours away from family things that we run to for comfort instead of him. He takes away those priorities, those values that keep us far off. He might even remove some friends from your life because it's better. That's why it's so painful because these are the things we run to. These are the things we depend on and he takes them away because that will make us more fruitful. That is better for us. What is it in your life that you're going, why, Lord? It could be, it could be that he's pruning you to make you more fruitful for him. The ultimate reason we have to keep in mind for this pruning is really a glorious one. And that is he's really preparing us ultimately for heaven. He's preparing us to be with him. There's a story of a Christian man who was going through a tough time. And during a time of a great business recession, he lost his job. He lost a financial, sizable financial fortune and a beautiful home. During this same period, his wife became sick and eventually died. One day when he was out walking, looking for employment, he stopped to watch some men who were doing some stonework on a large church. One of them was chiseling a small rectangular piece of stone. So the man said, what are you doing? Where are you going to put that? The workman said, do you see that little opening up on the spire on the top there? Well, I'm shaping this stone down here so that it'll fit up there. People of God, we're headed for a glorious place. And part of the difficulty of pruning, the difficulty of this life that God ordains for you, is preparing you for that. Take comfort. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And I ask you, Spirit, to apply it to our lives appropriately as only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.